0: What can we do as an association? What should we be doing in public education space, right? This is where all those advocacy years that I've uh, put in come in, right? How do we create these opportunities for students both in the the school day, um, around the edges of the school day, um, and in the summer? And how do we open those up and make certain that, that every child who's interested has the chance, right, to participate?
1: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to The Stage, the official performing arts podcast of the NFHS. I'm your host, Ken Burke, and today our guest is Lynn Tuttle, Executive Director of the American String Teachers Association. Not only is Lynn the Executive Director of ASTA, but she's also been described as a nonprofit professional, an outstanding musician, and overall great person. Lynn, I can't thank you enough for coming on today. I'm excited for our time together.
0: Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here.
1: So as, as we do start it off today, I got to ask you right off the bat, as a child, what did you want to be when you grew up and how did you get to where you are now?
0: It's a great question. So I think like a lot of uh, little girls – Right. Growing up, um, I wanted to be a teacher because that's what I knew. I went to school and I would certainly play play playing being teacher at home. Uh, Friends would come over, you know, and I'd be the teacher. They never got to be the teacher. I was always (laughs) the teacher. Right. (laughs) Um, And then I had this really amazing opportunity the summer after fifth grade. I got to go to New York State Music Camp in Oneonta, New York. It's about two, two and a half hours from where I grew up. And um, part of what we had to do at music camp was that everybody had to sing. So I'm a I was a pianist flutist um never sung that much even though I'd like to sing I never sung in a big choir or a formal choir but everybody had to stop midday at camp and sing and you know I was what 12 and I was like yeah this is it won't be fun whatever so I show up for concert choir and Ken, it's huge. It's like 300 people, right? <laughs> I never seen 300 people together, except for like a basketball game, yeah. you know, uh, at my school. Cause I grew up in a really rural community. Um, and so I was like, oh, this is never going to work. Right. So the, the boys and men were up on stage sitting, the girls and women were down in the, uh, auditorium seats, um, and then they handed out the music. Right, we had five days to tell them this music before we performed it, and it was the Elijah uh, by Mendelssohn. Right. So it's the big oratorio. We're going to do the bell course. So it's this big, thick, heavy book being handed out to everybody. And I'm like, this is so not going to work. Deeply <laughs> skeptical. Um, deeply skeptical. So I'm, I'm sitting there. And then the um, director of the choir comes out, uh, Dr. Bob, Bob Swift. Um, his father, uh, Frederick Swift, is sort of the granddaddy of New York State School Music Association of NISMA. Right? I didn't know that at this time. I just see Dr. Bob walk on the stage with his come over. And he's in clashing green from head to toe. So his green jacket's not quite the same as his green pants, socks, shirt, and tie. And I was like, it's going to be so bad. And then Dr. Bob warms up the choir and he's got a wicked sense of humor as I learned over my years at camp. Um, And so his warm-up was though I may be wrong. Those were the words, right? Because it gets all the different vowels in (laughs) Um, and includes this cool, like, you know, pretty normal harmonic progression, but with a cool flat seven toward the end. Again, he had a good sense of humor. He liked musical jokes as well. Um, And everyone opened their mouths and started singing and I was hooked. The sound was unbelievable. I this instant contact high and I'm like, I am doing this for the rest of my life. I don't know quite what this going on or why I love it so much, but I am in. Um, and I returned to music camp for four more years after that, ending as a counselor and loved every second of it. Loved the opportunity to create music with kids uh, my age and older and to, you know, just learn learn repertoire, play jazz, sing, uh, do music theory. And that's, I think, so you combine those two things together music and education and get you where I'm at today.
1: Wow. Do you think that has any. Do you think that opportunity had any ramifications for you now giving other people opportunities?
0: Absolutely. Um, I mean, again, I was so fortunate that uh, my parents could afford to send me to camp could get me, you know, the transportation to go there and then to do the follow-up parts, right, Ken? So I came back and I was jazzed and I wanted private lessons on flute and I wanted private voice lessons. And again, they had the means by which they could support me through that. And I, you know, can't thank them enough um, for that work and and the support of my family for that, but not all kids have access to that, right? So what can we do as an association? What should we be doing in public education space, right? This is where all those advocacy years that I've uh, put in come in right how do we create these opportunities for students both in the the school day um, around the edges of the school day um, and in the summer and how do we open those up and make certain that that every child who's interested has the chance right to participate
1: yeah yeah and that was my next question you've spent your entire career pretty much being an advocate for arts can you tell us how you got into that role just a little bit more in depth I think
0: (laughs) uh so, yeah, I was asked this question many years ago when I was doing a, a briefing on Capitol Hill. And I said, well, so, you know, came back from the music camp experience, started doing private lessons. And I would, you know, come home from school and I'd practice for an hour or so. And then on the weekends, I would stop and I would watch Washington Weekend Review and the McLaughlin Group, right? I mean, I was always into politics. <laughs> interested (laughs) in that so you know you take the interest of the love and the passion for the arts and for opportunities in the arts and then my interest in politics and kind of marry those two together and and you get the advocate that I've become and again just fantastic opportunities uh, in a variety of places and spaces where I've worked where people have allowed me to both learn and then to lead in terms of advocacy so um, I've again been very fortunate
1: so my follow-up question to that is kind of kind of related kind of not but you uh you're an expert in navigating federal and state education resources and I think it would be good a good talking point for those teachers and administrators that we have listening to this what advice would you do you have for those that are trying to navigate this complex system and what changes have you witnessed over the years hmm. Great
0: question. Um, First, you have absolutely a a right and a voice within the system, and I think sometimes it feels like that's not the case, right? That the system's not set up for that. It's set up to create sort of bureaucratic barriers, making it hard for you to participate. but the system is there for you to make use of it, and I encourage everyone to to do that. So what if it's new to you and you don't know where to go? Well, there are some resources out there. Um, certainly the national associations, including NFHS, I would say the National Association for Music Education, Arts Ed Partnership, um, state education agencies, if you're fortunate enough to have an arts ed consultant, right? They all have put out resources that you can take advantage of and and learn from. But uh, really, on the federal side, go find out who handles federal funds in your school district. There's probably a federal programs director, federal funds manager. Um, It could be, if you're a small school district, it could be someone in the finance office. It could be someone in their own department in a larger district. But just go knock on the door and start asking questions. And be a resource for them as well. I know it can be hard to go ask for money, but be ready. And I'm sure people, you already have this, you know this, right? Share the success stories. What's going on in your school, in the arts, in your music classroom? That's awesome. Go share that story. Share it with your principal. Go share it with those federal programs folks. Um, And then talk about the kids who are missing out, just like you and I were talking about earlier. So who hasn't had access? Who would love to be in music but can't afford to rent that instrument? Um, Who should be at all county but uh, doesn't have the transportation ability to get there and and what could the school district do to support that through federal dollars through local dollars through state dollars um and and make the case because the federal dollars in particular are all about access and equity um and your ability to make the case on how you can serve more students through your program by using these funds people will listen to that and then the The final thing I'd share, Ken, is um, you're, I would say, to any music educator or, or arts educator out there, performing arts educator out there, you're actually an amazing asset and resource for your federal programs, folks, because Because of the programs that you offer, you draw people into the school. You draw the community into the school. You draw parents into the school. And oftentimes those are voices that are required to be part of federal programs, but it can be really hard (laughs) to get parents to talk about it. So maybe, right, maybe the federal programs person can have three minutes at the start of your holiday concert to talk about the great things going on with title one at your school and to be there and answer questions for parents afterwards or to insert a survey into your concert program so that they're getting feedback from the community because they have to document that and it can be really hard to get parents engaged and you already have parents engaged so how can you be a resource
1: Mm, wow yeah that those are great points and i hope the teachers that listen to this they're taking notes because they need it
0: there is still a here's a technical term boatload of federal education dollars out there from the stimulus funds the ESSER funds something like 70 percent of ESSER funds from the big pot the third round haven't been spent yet so there is money sitting out there that you can access to support your program just saying
1: (laughs) I, I don't think a lot of people know that and like you just said
0: Go, go, go ask and go ask again and go ask one more time because those dollars are good until fall of 2024. So you have time. Go ask.
1: Right. Yep. You've turned music into kind of a family affair now, as as I've heard. Your husband is a professional orchestra uh, member and your sons both play instruments. What is what's it like being in this environment daily and how, how does it impact your approach to your job?
0: So my husband's not only a, a professional classical trumpet player, he also teaches. So he's uh, right now teaching middle school band. God yeah. bless him, middle school band. Um, <laughs> and bless everyone out there teaching eighth graders. I can teach any level except eighth grade. Just saying. Um, and that is a true fact. My husband would would uh, validate that in a heartbeat because he's watched <laughs> me teach eighth grade. and It's not fun. It's um, <laughs> not pretty. So... Um, I'm forever talking with him about what's going on, how things are going in the school, what's he hearing, what's he uh, living through, and and thinking particularly about the the impact of the pandemic on programs and watching programs as they start to rebuild. Um, And then also just, again, wanting to thank the amazing music, performing arts educators out there that made opportunities continue and occur for kids during the pandemic. And now I'm thinking of the high school theater teacher, where my, uh, both of my boys go to school, Potomac Falls High School. And um, so I was just going to say just a, a shout out to all of the teachers, all the performing arts educators in particular, who kept opportunities available for students during the pandemic. And again, a shout out to, the, uh, to Ms. Fox, the theater teacher at Potomac Falls High School, where both of my boys go. Um, she made a musical occur during the pandemic year. And so she had kids come in, they would rehearse parts individually or in small groups, they would be masked, they'd be distanced, and then she put it all together and got it videoed. And then instead of having us, she still could have us back in the auditorium for performance, um, she did a drive-in, right? So we all drove in in our cars and had a big screen up on uh, on the side of the building. Um, and just continuing those opportunities for kids um, was just really uh, powerful. It meant a lot to my, my uh oldest Landon um who was a sophomore at the time and just again keeping those opportunities going for kids um and thinking about how important that's been for my my two sons and watching the hard work that my husband and others have done in that space and then thinking about um you know what what is the long-term future right for classical music and what does that look like moving forward so those are often you know part of the family dinner time (laughs) discussions (laughs) <laughs> like every family, yeah, that's right? Cool st-
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, I-, I love that story about your-, your son's music teachers and the musical that they were involved in because that's, that is so cool just to see like, su- success stories like you were mentioning before. As I mentioned prior, you've recently become executive director of ASTA in the past couple of years. How has that transition been for you? And c- kind of a two-part question, how's that transition been and what do you hope to accomplish in this role?
0: So first of all, it's been a great transition. Um, I can't imagine a more welcoming environment to to enter. The board's been amazing. The members are amazing. Um, String teachers are really nice, Ken. Just saying. They are super nice. Um, even when they get grouchy, they then apologize immediately and say, I'm sorry. And I'm like, I don't even know that you were grouchy, but okay. Um, <laughs> they are so nice. I think partly, right, that there are so few of them compared to our band and choir and general music folks that they just, they're just excited that someone's paying attention to them, right? So part of my vision is like, how do we expand out that universe? How do we more be more inclusive? Um how do we uh bring more people in to be part of the string teachers um and um, right now we we our membership is very much you know sort of violin viola cello bass, you know, sort of bowed stringed, but, um, you know, our name doesn't say we're the American Bowed String Teachers Association, we're the String Teachers Association. So I also think there's an opportunity for us to do more to support our fretted strings, our guitar and ukulele and other colleagues in the field. So that's something I'm interested and curious about uh, doing more of, sort of expanding that tent.
1: That is, uh, it's a big role and I'm sure you have big plans for the future. So that's, that's really cool that you already, you already got to think about it. The gears are turning, you know, but what kind of initiatives do you have ahead for ASTA and string teachers around the country? I know you you just talked about it a little bit. Can you just give an example or two about what, what kind of initiatives are the future?
0: Well, uh, one thing that we're going to be doing at the Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic in December is, um, a pre-conference, five hours, a five-hour workshop um, devoted to our colleagues who teach string instruments, but who are not string primaries, right? So uh, we know that I don't know if it's majority; it's certainly close to close to majority of the orchestra teachers out there in our nation's high schools and middle schools. Um, They're not string primaries. They're band, normally band, sometimes choir teachers who are also teaching orchestra. And that's awesome. We're grateful that they're out there. Um, But we also know that they may need some assistance to be more successful in the orchestra classroom because string pedagogy, string methods, is different than what we do in band. Um, And... And there are some sort of key things that you can learn to do um, quickly that can make your orchestra a lot more successful. And so we're hoping to share some of those tips and ideas at Midwest and to go go where our band colleagues are, because for years ASTA would offer this as a as an in-depth ses- series of sessions or pre-conference at our conference. But, you know, band teachers don't think of themselves as string teachers necessarily, band directors who are also teaching orchestra. So we're going to go take this on the road to where we can find band directors. And the f- first place we thought it was Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic. So that's where we're taking it. So again, sort of expanding that, that platform that ASTA is also for you. Even if you're not a string primary, we can be a resource for you and we want to be a resource for you. Um, in addition, um, telling this a little bit ahead of time, but, um, we, we are unofficially awarded, um, a small National Endowment for the Arts grant where we're going to be commissioning work. So this is something I heard when I first came on board at ASTA that, um, String teachers really want to diversify the repertoire that's in their classroom, but they don't know how to find works by composers that have been histori- historically excluded or underrepresented in the repertoire list that have written for string ensemble, you know, like for intermediate or, uh, be- you know, advanced beginners or, uh, you know, the lower le- level of sort of advanced players, right? So for the, st- for the string students, there's not a lot of repertoire written by um, composers of color. And so we are really fortunate to partner with Rising Tide Music Press, um, Alyssa Jones's uh, catalog of composers, and she's focusing in on Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian composers in their first 10 years of work. And so she's identified composers that she's working with that would like to learn how to write for the string classroom. And we're going to pair them with um, experts on writing, folks that have written successfully, and teachers who are currently teaching. And they're going to we're going to commission these composers to write new works for the string ensemble classroom and then work with partners to get these distributed more widely. So again, while we're going to do the work as ASTA, these works will be available for any orchestra director to use across the nation.
1: Hmm. What a great resource and great resources that hopefully all the listeners check out because they, they, they sound like they can be really helpful for orchestras, for string classrooms, for just anybody that needs them, you know?
0: Yep. So give us about a year and hopefully by... I don't know, January, February of, of 24, we will have brand new works available.
1: That's awesome. But Lynn, uh, last question I did have for you. What What was your favorite activity in high school and how formative was that for you now?
0: So uh, I did lots of things in high school, obviously a lot of musical things, but I think the the piece that, was most formative for me, for me was the opportunity to uh, perform in a community youth orchestra, the Syracuse Symphony Youth Orchestra. And uh, again, I grew up in uh, upstate New York, very small community, we were over 50 miles from Syracuse. But that's where I went for my music lessons. And that's where I went for youth orchestra. Um, And so I would put on, you know, 200 miles every weekend to do lessons and to go to youth orchestra. Um, Or my parents did before I got my my license, as you can imagine, they're like, when are you getting your license? <laughs> you drive these miles for us. <laughs> Please. Um, yes. But whether, you know, in rain and sleet or snow, didn't matter. Um, youth Orchestra was such an amazing opportunity for me. We didn't have strings in the school where I grew up. It was too small. But I've always loved the sound of the symphony of of the orchestra. And so to get an opportunity to play that rep and to learn what it was like to be a wind player, a flutist in an orchestra. Um, I, that all began for me in that uh, Syracuse Symphony Youth Orchestra every Sunday. And um, by the way, I was a horrible section leader um, because I was so overwhelmed by the sound that I would forget to come in. And so Ernie Muskies, the conductor, was forever like, Flutes, flutes, where are the flutes? I'd be like, Oh, oh, it's supposed to be played. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was so beautiful. he just roll his yeah. eyes. He's like, Count.
1: Stop listening. Okay. That's funny. <laughs> that I mean, that's like that's a good and a bad thing, I guess, because you know you really you can appreciate the music that's going on around you, but at the same time you have to like pay attention. At the same time,
0: right? It's so <laughs> what we ask our kids to do every day, right? In their ensembles, yeah.
1: Yeah, but Lynn, I really do appreciate your time today. As I look back at what we discussed, I think the key takeaways in today's episode are: first of all, find out who does federal and state funding in uh, your states as a listener, uh, and also share success stories because obviously Lynn just uh, shared a couple, but can continue to share success stories, and you don't know how far they'll go and how what kind of an impact they'll have on whoever listens to them. Absolutely. But Lynn, any last thoughts before we wrap up our conversation?
0: No, thank you so much for your time. And again, thanks to all of the amazing performing arts educators out there. you're doing great work in supporting students and look forward to learning your success stories as you share them back with nfhs and uh, ways in which we can continue to increase access and opportunity, so
1: more students can be in your classrooms exactly exactly well thank you again lynn uh for all listeners out there please remember to leave a rating and review on the podcast and share it with someone that you think would be impacted by what was discussed today sharing this episode with one teacher, one coach, one administrator will go not only a long way for us, but it'll go a long way for them too. Uh, Thank you so much for listening and I hope to catch you next time on the stage.